Welcome back to part two of Lessons with Leaders with Catherine Granger of Civitas. She's a partner there. She has done amazing work on Marriage Equality Act in, in New York State. Um, come and hear her talk about that work, talk about the um, her three superpowers that she has, and talk about what empathy and vulnerability have to do with leadership that she's learned from her own personal experience. And she ends with what she wished advice she could give her younger self, which uh, caught me by surprise what she said. So please listen to this episode and let's learn from a very thoughtful, deeply reflective leader that we are so grateful to have in the world. So Catherine Granger. Welcome back, everyone. This is part two with Catherine. And uh, if you'll remember, hopefully, if you didn't hear the part one, you definitely want to catch it because we were, we were having just the most amazing conversation about vulnerability and leadership and if how to be, at what point can you bring being vulnerable and what that leadership gets, what that gets you. But Catherine was saying how she herself, it's had to come in being very strong and feeling in control um, until she got to a certain point. And Catherine, forgive me if I'm misrepresenting what you said. Um, however, please do watch part one. And Catherine, let's jump in and talk about where you have been, um, how you've applied these these learnings that you had about vulnerability and being strong and yeah um, well happy happy for to be back <laughs> and um, the you know I think that it as you were reflecting on what I said the thing that popped into my head is isn't it crazy that it has to be a luxury uh, for women people of color to be vulnerable but you have it actually has to be something that uh, you have to get to a point in your career in order to um, actually deserve. And, and I, I think about my experience of working in politics. Um, and I actually, I think it's the thing I love most is working in politics, but it, it does not lend itself to the lessons that we just discussed um, from leadership and vulnerability. And I think, I, and, and I think that, you know, I was, I was assistant counsel with Governor Cuomo um, in that capacity was able to negotiate and help write the marriage equality bill uh, for New York. And the reason I bring that up in this context is um, myself and Alfonso David, who's now president of the Human Rights Campaign, we did that work together. And the story is often left out that two black gay people uh, wrote the marriage equality bill in, in New York State. Um, the reason that it's important in this conversation is we were in the trenches working on this bill day in and day, day out to get it right. And our community, um, women, uh, civil rights activists, I come out of the reproductive health space, so reproductive health um, activists, all trusted us to get it right. They trusted that we were not going to uh, strip away the rights that these um, individuals already had in order to uh, get marriage secured. And it was a tremendous responsibility that we carried on our shoulders to 
um, get everything perfect, which is why I'm bringing it up in this context, um, and, to, and, to, and to get it right. Um, there, I wrote 45 versions of the religious exemption in order to maintain the protections that um, are so important from a human rights and civil rights perspective for all of us. And I bring that all up because um, if Alfonso and I had not been in the space, it would not have, I, I don't think that that level of sensitivity would have happened, but I also don't think that the trust of the community uh, would have been there. And what that creates is enormous pressure to um, not only take care of what is in front of you, but an entire population of people. And I think that so many um, people of color and women carry that with them in the workplace. And that, that keeps you from being able to be vulnerable. It keeps you from being able to have moments of, I don't know, or am I, am I doing this right? And then the conditions are such in those environments, you know, that we would be negotiating things at four, three or four o'clock in the morning um, after having been up all night. That also precludes a lot of people from being able to be in those spaces. Mm -hmm. And so as I think about, you know, my time in the Cuomo shop was a masterclass in power and building power and leveraging power. Um, I use it every day in my work to fight for uh, the betterment of the, the populations that I care about and in working for. And I also question constantly, is there another way? Would there have been a way to, is there a way to do political work that isn't um, completely destabilizing for the people who are doing it? Um, is there another way to build trust so that it doesn't um, lay on the shoulders of two staffers who happen to have access to those rooms? Um, and is there another way to do work in daylight so that people with families, um, particularly women, are not excluded from it because of the hours and the conditions that it creates. And so I bring it up because I think it was probably the time in my career that I'm most proud of. And I also think of it as um, these are all of the lessons now that I'm trying to dismantle to figure out um, how to work differently, how to show up differently, how to be um, a more vulnerable and inclusive boss. Um, and so those two, those two things, I don't think need to be in conflict, but they often so much are. Thank you for that. That's some, uh, you raised some questions that I, I don't, I think that are gonna be, that are, there's no quick answer or immediate answer to them. So how, how do we, how do we have this kind of work be so that more people can participate in it? It's not, um, just people who don't have kids or who can work long hours or and that it's not such a struggle and that makes me think that there's so many professions that that's that would fit into that that's their attributes right um, well and the reason I bring it up in the political context though is mm -hmm. that if we're actually going to have a reflective democracy anyone who wants to be involved in the political process should be able to have access to mm -hmm. it. And, um, you know, the structures are such that I think that it precludes a lot of people, including just salary, wow. uh, from being able to participate. And I actually think that has started to shift since Trump was elected and people were like, wait, 
the world is not going to change unless I participate in it. Right. But I think that we can constantly, to your point, be questioning how we make all of our spaces um, more inclusive because we'll thrive when we have a more diverse population that can participate in it. And that has my mind jumped to something else you and I talked about earlier was um, what would we see differently if more women of color were in leadership positions? And I'm wanting to hear what you think about that. Yeah, you know, as I was telling the Cuomo story, I was thinking exactly that. Like, what, what would it have been like if we, if we changed the rules a little bit um, to build things collectively? Mm -hmm. And I think that um, women of color in politics and in power are starting to shift that. Um, everybody's talking about Stacey Abrams right now. Mm. And I think that she's a great example of what I'm describing because what she was able to do in Georgia was not just say, I want to be the governor of the state um, and I'm going to be a leader to do so. She, a, a leader and everyone will vote for me. She actually built a multiracial coalition to shift power in the state. And as a result of her believing in we can do politics, we can do power in a different kind of way that can be inclusive, that listens to everybody, that builds based on what people say they need they, um, versus what politicians say um, they need, right? So it's actually coming from the ground up. You start to create an environment that people are invested in um, and they feel like if they don't participate in it, then change won't happen. And Stacey built that incredible coalition. It didn't get her to win, but it, it for the first time, and I don't know how many years since I think before Clinton, um, Georgia went blue. Mm -hmm. And it's because of that kind of feminist ethos that women of color think about of um, if I am better off and my community is better off, we're all better off. And that empathy that we started talking about in the first half of if, um, if we understand each other's pain, then we can um, build solutions together. That's what I think happens when women of color lead. Um, and I think that that's what's so beautiful about it. And I also think that's what scares people because it changes the power um, paradigm from what we know, which is very top down to something that actually is inclusive and is based on um, experience, lived experience, as opposed to kind of dictating what people need or should ask for. It also means opening it up for other voices, which we may be scared to, may not agree with what we think is the right thing. So that's also a, a could be a point of discomfort for some people. I think that's a discomfort for everyone. Yeah. And I also feel like what a beautiful thing mm -hmm. to feel uncomfortable by other people's ideas and thoughts. And I, I will just um, add to that the movement for black lives. I think that when um, the work that they started uh, first began, I think it made, it made a lot of people feel uncomfortable. I think still some people, including black people, feel uncomfortable when they hear defund the police. And I feel like going back to this conversation about a beginner's mind, for me, I wanted to really understand what that meant. Mm 
And once you go kind of below and deeper, what what is exposed is, oh, wait, people are explaining to me based on their lived experiences how life could be better. And all I have to do right now is listen to that and then hear it in a way that I'm like, I can support that because you're just asking for um, a better life. And so I, I feel like those, the, I'm, I'm often in those moments of discomfort because I've learned the rules of politics and what we need to do in order to be successful. And in those moments, I really sit and sit with it and try to learn from it because it's those moments of discomfort that actually are going to create the kind of change that I think most good people in politics deeply believe in. Um, but they never let themselves be curious enough to say, I don't know, and I need to learn from others. Which comes back to the vulnerability. That's right. That's right. Having a little um, pool of the key attributes. But I, I don't want to get derailed. I want to talk about the discomfort. Um, and I love that you're reframing it as something beautiful. How do you yourself, like, what is your practice? And I imagine you evolved it over time on how to a recognize that you're uncomfortable and st stand there because no most of us that we feel it and then we shift without even noticing that we were uncomfortable so how yeah. do you, what have you done what is your practice to, to um, stick there yeah a few things first i i had to have a conversation with myself that i was going to have the practice mm. as opposed to um the my normal uh, response when there's discomfort is I have to fix it. I have to put it away. I have to um, manage it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know what? That that actually keeps innovation from being from from bubbling up. So first, I had to acknowledge it. Um, second, I teach for this exact reason. Being in the classroom um, challenges me every week to um, teach what I think I'm to unlearn what I'm an expert in, mm. right? That I have to say, all right, I have to be able to teach this from somebody who doesn't know it and be very open when I go into that room about how, what the response is going to be. So I have epiphany moments every week in, in the classroom um, around things that I have been doing my entire career. And that, that creates discomfort too, right? If somebody's challenging maybe a bill that I wrote or a policy that I was a part of, and there's there are deep learnings from that. And, and then I think the last thing is I try to listen, um, which I think that leaders, once you get to a certain point in your career, uh, you don't do a lot because people are asking you the questions and you have to have all of the solutions. And so I, I really try to listen. You know, sometimes I'll have my phone and, and I'm like, put it down, be present, because it's in those moments um, that you learn. You feel you, the discomfort starts to go away because you're listening and you're learning. Um, and I think it all goes back to, again, vulnerability and empathy, because you start to see issues as people and needs versus uh, laws and policy. The way I see it is like you feel uncomfortable and ch you choose vulnerability and empathy, which means listening and having a beginner's mind, being open to learning as if you, it was all new. So it's like a, a, you get to a crossroads discomfort and you purposely said choose going to vulnerability and empathy. 
Yeah. And I think also deep question of what is in me that is causing me to feel mm-hmm. uncomfortable right now? What are the lessons that I have to learn around patriarchy, around right supremacy, um, that have been that have been the rules that have helped me be successful and are actually not letting any of us live um, as great as we could be. And so it's a lot of internal work that I think that we all uh, have to do. And I'll just say one more thing is that that was the basis of the civil rights movement and civil rights leaders is they um, felt deeply that there was a responsibility to constantly be making yourself, the individual, a better person Mm -hmm. um, in order for the movement to be successful. And with that comes that constant, what is my role in this? Why, how am I contributing to the discomfort? And why is this making me feel uncomfortable? And I think that those are lessons as leaders that we um, have, have to ask ourselves in order to do our work well and authentically. And thank you for that. And I did not know that that was uh, the the philosophy or the practice for the civil rights leader. So I appreciate that learning. I also wanted to add, you also, we also have to confront our self image that we're trying to protect. Yes. So that the way I am wanting you to see me, I have to let go of that in order to hear, be empathetic, stand in that discomfort. And I think that's often, at least for me, that's the first thing that comes out wait, I don't want you to think that way of me, so I'm going to... Well, and I think that um, that makes so much sense, too, because we're in such a, um, a call-out culture right now where there has to be a certain level of perfection, particularly in many of our movements, using the right words um, and having the right thoughts and being woke enough to be in the room and that excludes a lot of people who have deep lived experience that needs to be shared. And I think um, I think the movement for Black Lives is really addressing that in a beautiful way um, and having deep conversations and going back to uh, what it looks like to be in a, a feminist, a Black feminist culture. Um, movement for Black Lives was, was founded by Black queer women and they're leading in that way. And so their constant conversations and grapplings and calling in versus calling out. And that's that's when that's when we start changing things at scale, right? That's when movement building really happens, when people can be their vulnerable, authentic selves uh, and feel like they're working towards something versus feeling like they're gonna make a mistake and it's gonna create a, a circumstance where they can't participate. Right, because they get chucked out. Yeah. Um, there's all this brain science around that our social threats and that one of our greatest fears is getting chucked out of the community. And yeah. so we work hard to stay in so we don't get chucked out. Uh, what, um, what advice would you give your younger self? You think about little Catherine coming up, maybe not 12, maybe 20, but maybe 12. What, what do you yeah. know now that you wish you knew then? play more, Mm. be silly. Um, It's not all so serious all the time. Um, Yeah, yeah, that makes me emotionally even say it. But uh, I think that that is a lesson um, that I wish I knew at 12, 20, and it's one that I remind myself uh, at 47. 
that is the perfect place then for us to end. Catherine, thank you from the bottom of my heart for giving us this time, your wisdom, your vulnerability, and for teaching us uh, what you know so that we can come behind you or at least come up to you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I've enjoyed the conversation.